It's an encouragement, yes. I really wanted Becca's rhyme to, name to rhyme with Addie and Maddie, so. Patty, Addie, Maddie, maybe. I don't know, Becca, how do you feel about it? No, she's gone, all right. All right, friends, if you have a Bible, open with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, where we're gonna be. So we've been in this three-chapter section. We've been studying this book of 1 Kings, which is predominantly about how we need a better king than any earthly king can be, and the kind of people we are to be in light of who our king is. But the, the book has shifted in these three chapters that we've been looking at, chapter 17, 18, and 19, has shifted to this kind of theme within a theme, if you will, where God's saying to us, that he is committed to raising up voices to demonstrate and declare that he alone is God. That's the theme of these three chapters, this three-chapter section that we're in the last chapter of now, to raise up voices that he alone is God, to demonstrate and to declare that. So he did that in chapter 17 by raising up Elijah as a prophet. So the very goal or work of a prophet is to do exactly that, to demonstrate and to declare that God, not a false God, not Baal in this case, or any other idol is God. And so that's how we saw that in chapter 17. But then in chapter 18, if you were here last week, uh, we saw, and Ryan did a great job of unpacking for us, you can go back and listen to it if you didn't catch it, that God declares and demonstrates that he's God by winning great victories and showing the weakness of false idols and his strength in comparison to them. So we had a bit of a cage match between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Do we remember this, yes? All right, so he's demonstrated that. And now we turn a corner, and what's interesting is you might think, okay, he's done this massively powerful thing. He has raised up this prophet who is the greatest of all the prophets, the one that the nation of Israel always looked to as the demonstration of, the, of one of the greatest of God's servants in Elijah. But now he does something a little different. In chapter 19, again, same big idea. God is demonstrating and declaring that he alone is God. But you know how he does it in this chapter? He does it by showing us that he cares for his servants when they're hurting. When his servants are hurting, God shows, he demonstrates and declares that he's God by restoring them and by comforting them. So this chapter, friends, is for those of you who have ever hurt because you've been trying to serve God or you're hurting now because you've been trying to serve the Lord and his calling upon your life, or for those of you who will hurt one day because you are trying to serve the Lord. Now, let me say this. There's a distinction here I need to make. It is very much, there are some sort of general lessons about the way God comforts uh, and the way he restores in this chapter, and they're very applicable regardless of what your struggle may be. If it's sickness, illness, uh, if it's you know uh, a broken relationship, there's there's a message here for you. But I want you to see and understand that predominantly the message of this chapter is when you have given everything you have to serve the Lord, I mean, you're straining and striving to serve him and you find yourself just spent, like you're at that place where you're ready to quit. You just go, I'm done, I've got nothing left to give, I want to be done, I don't wanna do this anymore. How does God enter into that moment in your life to restore you and to comfort you? That's what I want you to see. And that, that serves, I don't want you to think vocational ministry. Uh, I don't even primarily want you to think in terms of like the way you serve within our body, although those, are, those very much apply, like in volunteering to, to disciple uh, students or in children's ministry as a teacher, or it might be you know, any one of the ministries around or a ministry you have in our community. It might be in your marriage, which is a call from God and a ministry. 
It might be in your parenting, which is a call from God and a ministry. It might be you as a student in the school, which is a call from God and a ministry. Can we all agree that those are ministries of God through you into the world, yes? And so if you've ever gotten to that place where you're like, I'm just done. I've got, I got nothing left to give. I don't wanna do this anymore. This chapter's for you. And my hope is that it would speak a great comfort to you. And the comfort might be different than what you think it is. It might be different than what you think it is. So I wanna pray, because here's the thing I also know, uh, is that when we need comfort, is sometimes that's the time we're least wanting to receive it. When God would say, let me, let me come and comfort you, and we're like, I, <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want this right now. I just want to be sad, or I just want to be, man, this thing is killing me. George, can I ask you a favor, man? Would you grab me one that maybe will stay up? I'm so sorry, dude. It stayed up the first service. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Guys, it's a running joke around here. All right. I meant to be very sincere here and say, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> that's what I asked George to do around the office Monday through Friday. Could you just get me things? Do things for me? <laughs> Here's what I know. Uh, sometimes when we most need comfort, it's when we're least willing to receive it. So you may need the Spirit of God just to break down your resistance to this. I just wanna pray that for us, okay? In all sincerity, for all jokes aside. All right, let me just pray. Lord, my prayer is that uh, my brothers and sisters who are in need of you to just kind of break down those barriers, resistance towards receiving your restoring work, that you would just bring that guard down. And we know, Lord, that we don't need a human preacher's words. We need your spirit to come and to bring your word to bear on us. And so I would ask you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's read the text together. And then what we're going to see, what we're gonna see is some lessons about how God does this restoring work. So just follow along with me. This is my favorite chapter in the Old Testament, which is saying a lot, because there's a lot of really good Stuff in God's word, obviously, but I have found this to be so rich in my own life. So personally, this chapter has struck me again and again. I go back to it again and again when I'm in need of restoration. So let's read it together. Follow along with me as we read the whole chapter here. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was, was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, 
even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of, and many of your translations here are going to say the sound of a low whisper. I want you to think in terms of the, the sound of a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. All right, so it's an interesting story, yes? And what can we learn from about how God restores a discouraged servant, about how he comes alongside and restores and comforts? Well, here's the first thing that I think we can learn. The first lesson is that discouragement can come at unexpected times and for unexpected reasons. Have you ever found this to be the case? You didn't expect to be discouraged and all of a sudden you found yourself in a place where you were. So let's go back in our story and remember, if you were with us for chapter 18, Elijah had just seen God send fire from heaven to demonstrate that he alone was God and not Baal. And then he won a massive victory where the people had risen up and conquered the prophets of Baal and said, no, we will not worship him. We will worship God alone. And then we turn to ch chapter 19, and the first thing that happens is Jezebel, who is queen, because Ahab is a little sniveling weakling as king, runs back to his wife and says, you won't believe what Elijah did. And she says, I'm coming for you. And Elijah, who wasn't afraid of 850 prophets, is scared of one queen. And there's good reason, because she's done this before. If you remember a couple chapters earlier, we heard that there was a servant of the Lord who had hidden 100 prophets of the Lord in a cave because Jezebel had been actively killing prophets of the Lord. Yes, do we remember this? 
And so he knows it's not an empty or an idle threat. But here's the thing, as we read the story, we might go, Elijah, are you serious? Like we just saw God do something massively powerful. How is it that you're scared of one threat from one person? I don't understand where that comes from. Now listen, here's where I think it comes from. And here's where I think our discouragement comes from. When we might have found ourselves in the midst of a really fruitful season serving the Lord, we may have found ourselves winning a great victory. But you know what happens is sometimes you see a massive movement of God or you see him do something in the way that you've been trying to serve or in a relationship with your kid maybe where it seems like there's this breakthrough. And then following that breakthrough, sometimes there's a setback. And when you've experienced that setback, at the moment where you thought we just made massive progress, and I think maybe even Elijah might have thought, all done, mission accomplished. And it's at that moment when Jezebel goes, oh yeah, I'm gonna put you to death. Then all of a sudden, he's gotta think, seriously, God, we've still gotta keep going? We're not done yet? I wanna be done. Didn't we win? Didn't we just win? Isn't it over? And the answer is no not over. You have to keep going. And Elijah gets deeply discouraged, so much so that he wants to quit. He wants to move on. He doesn't want to do this anymore. One of the things that we have to expect and learn to have as an expectation is that sometimes discouragement, depression, difficulty, being downtrodden, feeling like we want to quit can come on the heels of the greatest victories that we might win. And sometimes that's because we think to ourselves, I I just, I thought I was done. I, look, here's a silly example, but like my wife is a great cook and so she does most of the cooking. That means I do most of the dishes and my most discouraging moment is when you, you've done the dishes and you clean the kitchen and you think you're done and then somebody comes and sets one more dirty dish at the edge of the sink. And you think, no, I wanted to be done. I thought I was done. I wanna go watch basketball. Nope, gotta finish, gotta do one more, right? That's the most discouraging moment in the dish doing. It's kind of like what Elijah's doing. It's a silly example, but... Have you ever been there where you're just like, I don't wanna do one more thing. I thought I'd done everything I had to do. That's what I think is going on with Elijah. He just, he thought he'd won. And he finds out there's still more to go. Now, so one is we've gotta set our expectations. Do you know this? Idols don't die easily. Not in the life of a nation and not in the life of a person. So when you're serving the Lord, part of that will always be identifying idols among those that you're serving and and trying to see them rooted out. But when you confront them, people don't just let their, you don't confront an idol and somebody goes, I'm so glad you pointed that out, thank you. I will stop doing that. They will rage against you often. How dare you? Who do you think you are? You think you're the one that should be telling me this thing? No. Leave me alone, be quiet. That's what is happening to Elijah and it happens to us. So we need to understand that idols have to be rooted out ruthlessly. They have to, you have to keep going after them and take, it takes a long time. It's very rare that you would pursue rooting out an idol in your own life or in the life of someone you love and are ministering to that they would just go. More often than not, it takes labor, intense labor over years and years. Sometimes you think you've won the victory and then that idol shows its head again. Here's the other thing I wanna say to you, friends, in terms of setting our expectations. Can I also say, 
if the greatest of God's prophets can get discouraged and be afraid and want to quit, how about you don't beat yourself up when you feel the same way? How about you not make that a mark of I'm unfaithful? Everyone will feel that way in service to the Lord at some point. Now, it's possible to let that lead you into unfaithfulness, yes. It's possible to let that lead you into unfaithfulness. But feeling that way and wanting to quit and having these kinds of dialogues with the Lord, you're like, enough, is not an indicator of unfaithfulness. So just, in some sense, cut yourself a little slack, okay? If the Lord is willing to engage with Elijah this way, if Elijah can be so discouraged after such a massive victory, you and I can be as well. And so... Don't beat yourself up as it relates to that. Second lesson for us is this. Starting down the road of quitting doesn't mean you have to keep going down that road. If you start down the road of quitting, you don't have to keep going down the road. You can turn around. So here's what I love about this. When you read a lot of, a lot of the scholars on this, I think they're actually wrong. Uh, because one of the things they sort of paint Elijah as this reluctant prophet, as if he's on the run and he's just, he's, he's really quit. Now at the beginning, I think that's the case. If you notice at the beginning, we get a little geography. He's in, he's in Jezreel, which is where uh, Ahab and Jezebel are. And that's in the far north of the kingdom. And then it says he goes to Beersheba and even a day south into the wilderness of Beersheba. So what you need to know is Beersheba is as far south in the nation of Israel as you can go. He was as far north as you could go. He's now as far south as you can go. Why? Because he's afraid, right? And so he's running. And then he goes out into the wilderness and his conversation with the Lord when he asks him, why are you here, is What? He says, well, actually, before the Lord even asked him why he's here, he says, I want to quit. He even says, it's enough, let me die. I'm ready to be done. So I'm so discouraged that I'm ready to have my life ended. He says, I'm no better than my father's, which is the way of saying all the other prophets before me died, I I might as well join them. I'd rather rather be done. That's what I'd I'd rather be done. That's how deeply discouraged he is. Now listen, friends, He starts there, but then God feeds him supernaturally, right? And he provides, you know, two naps. Come on now. It's good news right there. And then he does something. Here's why I don't think Elijah, I think Elijah lays down the quitting thing because he's fed and then it says he goes in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And he goes down into the wilderness to Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. The scriptures use those names interchangeably. Same place, okay? He heads way south, and as he's going down there, why is he going down there? Because the Lord said, the journey is too great for you. In other words, I'm gonna feed you because the journey's too great for you. So he's now, is he running or is he listening and obeying now? He's listening and obeying. At first, he wanted to quit. God feeds him, and he gives him instruction, and Elijah follows it. That's why I don't think he's still in that I'm quitting and I'm done. I think he has gone, okay, God, you're telling me to do something, I will still do it. I don't think he's, he's not restored, he's not <laughs> deeply encouraged, he's still very much discouraged, but he's willing to go. And here's what I want you to see, friends. It's never too late to stop running and to start listening. It's never too late to stop running and to start listening. If you've ever quit serving where you were called or to whom you were called, God can restore you to that work. I want you to note something. At the end of the story, when God does answer Elijah and he says to him, I'm gonna do these things, this is 
what I'm gonna call you, the instruction I'm gonna give you, because he does give instruction. He doesn't leave Elijah without direction. The very beginning of that instruction, he says, go and, what was the word? Return. Return. In other words, go back where you came from. Go back to doing what you were doing before. And I wonder to how many of us God would say today, return. Return. There will always be moments in life where following the Lord will mean stopping one thing and starting another. That happens. And, you know, that's a regular occurrence. But can I tell you something? There will be moments in life where God will say, I want you to go from where you are to a new thing. Praise God for that. That's awesome. But more often, God will say, stay where you are. Just think about it. Even if every five years God gave you a new mission, a new thing to do, he would still, for the five years in between the every one time he said go to the new thing, he would be saying what? For five years, stay, 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 stay. And it's only in the staying faithfully that you can be prepared to do the going faithfully. More of the Christian life is stay, build roots, dig in, keep investing, don't stop. You're gonna have to do it. Stay, stay, stay. Or in this case, return. And so I wonder if God might be saying to you today, return. You have run away, you have walked away, you've been deeply discouraged, I understand, but my word to you is return. Now, the other thing that I want you to see here is that we read this and it sounds like everything just happens like back to back, but how long was Elijah walking from Beersheba or from one day south of Beersheba to Mount Horeb. How long was that? 40 days and 40 nights. Have you been on a hike before? I want you to imagine the kind of dialogue that Elijah was having with God. It's not like he stopped interacting with God. We don't have it recorded for us, but for 40 days, Elijah's putting one foot in front of another to go to the place where God wants to do a healing work and a restoring work in him. Now, when you see 40 days, the thing you need to know here is that this journey in terms of miles would have taken 10 to 15 days, max. You know, just walking at a normal pace, 10 to 15 days. Why 40? Because 40 is a significant number in scripture. Anytime we see the number 40, it represents a time of preparation. So think of Israel in the wilderness, 40 years before they enter the promised land. Think of Moses, 40 years in the wilderness of Midian before he goes and receives God's call to what? Go to Pharaoh and say, set my people free. Think of Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness before what? He begins his ministry. So 40 days is a time of preparation. So here's what the scriptures are telling us. Elijah was in need of a season of preparation before he could receive the restoration that God wanted to do. And those 40 days of walking, that's what that is. That's God preparing him for what he's going to do to restore him. So we read it and it sounds like, well, Elijah's really discouraged and then he has this encounter with God and then he's good, right? But it's not that simple. There's a long time span being played out over here. And sometimes we get discouraged if that restoring work takes more than a day. We, just, we wanna be restored, we wanna be done, we wanna be emotionally uplifted and God is saying, it's, it's gonna be some time maybe here. But just know that those, that season, that time, it may not be exactly 40 days, right? But it's not 40 years for you, but where there's a season of just sort of putting one foot in front of the other while you're waiting, Lord, come and do that restoring work. It's intentional, preparing you 
for that. Now, let's go to the next thing. The next lesson we learn is super simple, but it's a really important one, is that part of God's restoring work is taking care of our physical needs. Part of God's restoring work is taking care of our physical needs. Now, he does that with Elijah here. Uh, I have a friend who says (laughs) he gives Elijah a nap, a snack, and a friend. I really love that, right? He gives him two naps. I already noted that. I'm a nap fan, so that's good, right? But here's the deal. What What I want you to learn there is that he didn't need to do that. He could have just ignored that. He could have just not recorded it. He could have just supernaturally given Elijah the strength. Like, Elijah could be in the wilderness, and God could go, I'm gonna supernaturally impart to you the strength to go into the wilderness for 40 days. He could have, yes, can we all agree God could do that? But he takes the time to say, I'm actually gonna send an angel and I'm gonna give you a, you know, a, a loaf of bread. I'm gonna give you some water. And then I'm gonna, let you, I'm gonna have you take a nap. And then I'm gonna have you take another nap. And I'm gonna feed you again. And friends, what I wanna say to you is, God is not in the business of just going, oh, his only interest in you is not in what you can do for him. He wants to care for your needs. And part of the restoring work is seeing how he might do that. Now, it might not be supernatural. It might not be that God is gonna go, I'm gonna supernaturally provide for your needs. Now, at times, I've seen God do that in my own life where there was no money in the bank for seminary and, it, and then it just a check shows up. And you're like, where did that come from? And it's God going, I, I, got, I got you. I'll take care of you. Like, I called you here. I'm not gonna leave you. I love that. So sometimes it is. It's like this, no one could have known. How did that happen? Praise God. But often it's just in the, hey, I've provided for you the things that you need. Now just receive them, right? So what I wanna say to you is as you're in need, when you're in need of restoration, don't ignore your physical needs. Don't ignore sleep. Don't ignore good food, right? Take Take those things, receive them as good gifts from the Lord and part of his restoring work to you. Yes? Okay, don't, don't be the minimalist who's like, no, nah, I'm just gonna eat gruel. Does anybody eat gruel? Right? No. Like, enjoy what God brings to you. This part of his restoring work, okay? Now, let me focus in, because this is where we wanna spend the most of our time, all right? The greatest need that any of us has in receiving God's restoring and comforting in the midst of our just, I, I'm done, the greatest thing that we need is not God to speak to us. It's not God to change our circumstances. It's God to give us a manifestation of his presence, an experience of his presence that we have not had before. We need to know that he's with us. Now, let me show you where I get that from. Because again, this is why I said, I don't think the best translation is the sound of a low whisper. It's actually the sound of a thin silence at the end of verse 12, which is like saying a pregnant pause. It's a silence that communicates more than words ever could. There is something that God does in silence that he does not do in words. Now, let me walk you through how I get there, and you can judge whether or not we're we're executing correctly within the scriptures here, all right? So, first thing that we see, right, is, and by the way, this is important, because if it's the sound of a gentle whisper, then the question is, well, what did God say? What were the words that he spoke that that were healing? But if it's the sound of silence, then the message about his presence, not his words. And that's important. That's a distinction. Now, here's where I get that. So number one, the first thing that we see is that God asks Elijah a question. He says, why are you here? Now, I don't know the tone of that. I can't read tone into the scriptures. I don't know if it's a little bit more like, why are you here? Or if it's why are you here? 
right? But here's what I know. The question was not, why are you there? The question was, why are you here? What is the difference between those two things? If I say to you, why are you there? I'm saying, I'm here and you're there. Why are you over there? But if I say, why are you here? What am I saying? I'm there with you. We're in the same place. Why are you here? God is saying, hinting to Elijah, I'm, I'm here where you are here. That's the first thing that we see. Now, then the next thing, Elijah's response is a complaint. Oh, let me say this, sorry, by the way. When God asks a question in scripture, it's not because he needs the answer. The same thing is true in our lives. When God asks a question, it's not because he needs the answer. So what is he doing with Elijah? He's inviting an interaction. That's what he's doing. He said, I wanna hear your heart. Tell me your heart. I'm listening. I'm here with you and I'm listening. God does not need Elijah to tell him why he is there. God knows why Elijah is there. That is for Elijah, it is not for God. Now, the second thing that we see is that Elijah's response is a complaint that's born out of false perception. Now, when we are hurting, we are prone to have all kinds of false perceptions. Would you agree with that? And we need help. We need help seeing where our perception is not accurate. But here's the thing. God is eventually going to correct Elijah's false perception. He is going to say, you're not alone. Elijah says, I'm alone. I'm the only one. No one is left but me. And at the end of the passage, we heard there's how many? 7,000 that have not kissed Baal, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he's not alone. He's wrong. But does God correct Elijah right away? No. His first work and most important work is not to say, well, Elijah, let me tell you how your perception is wrong and let that be a comfort to you. Now, how many of you are prone, like I am, to when someone is hurting and they say, I've got this problem, I got that problem. How many of you are like, but, but you're not seeing it right? How many of you are, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just think in your heart. I don't wanna out you, all right? But I'm guessing, and I'm guessing a lot of us are men who tend to be like, no, 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 here's where you're not seeing it right. Y'all, I did this yesterday. I'd already prepared this message. And I was like, but here's what you don't see. And I'm like, oh, wait, shoot. And I didn't realize it until first service that I've done that last night. We're prone to want to correct perception, but God's first agenda here clearly is not to correct Elijah's false perception because that's not what Elijah needs. He doesn't need to go, no, 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 Elijah, you're seeing it all wrong. There's 7,000, you're not alone, so suck it up, right? No, he doesn't do that. He, he seems to just listen, right? And he doesn't respond with words. Now, here's, here's the, then the third, the interesting thing, right? So he doesn't correct that false perception right away. It's not his major agenda. What does Elijah need? Becomes the question. Well, if what Elijah needed was God to say something to him, then the question we'd have to ask is, wasn't he already talking to Elijah when he said, why are you here? And then Elijah starts talking. And then they're talking afterwards too. And did you notice it's the exact same conversation? I think there's a different tone the second time around. But it's the exact same conversation. So if what Elijah needed was for God to answer his questions, then that's already happened right? That, they're already talking. God could just say, oh, here's the answers to your questions. You don't need God to tell you why something is happening. That's not what will heal you. You think it is sometimes, don't you? Don't we go, just tell me why. If he told you why, would it really make you feel any better if it was still happening? No, you'd still be like, well, this stinks. And I don't like it. And why doesn't help all that much? God may answer your why questions sometimes, but man, if I read scripture correctly, a lot of times he does not answer the why question. He tends to say, trust me, 
I'm with you. Doesn't answer why. Now, what's the next thing that happens? He says, Elijah, go to the mouth of the cave. And Elijah goes. And he says, and it says the Lord passed by. So this is like taking us back to Exodus 33 and Moses. And he says, show me your glory. And he passes by and says, covers him up with his hand because you can only see my backside, my back. You can't look upon my face and live. So Elijah goes. And then we get this interesting moment where we also learn that Elijah doesn't need God's power to be demonstrated. That's not his great need because it says there was a wind. Now, did that wind that was strong enough to shatter the rocks on the mountains, did that just come from nowhere? Was it just nature? Oh, coincidence. No. Who made the wind? God. But God was not, keyword, in the wind. Do you see what that's referring to? God's presence was not carried in. God did it, but God was not in it in the way Elijah needed. And then there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. The whole point is God's presence has not come about in a way that Elijah really needs, which is why I think then, then there was the sound of, and I don't think it's a, little, a, a whisper, a gentle whisper, I think it's the sound of thin silence. That word for silence shows up three times in the scriptures, here and two other places, and in both the other places, the translation is silence. It's not low whisper. It's complete like solitude, nothingness, quietness. So I think the better translation is there was the sound of silence, and Elijah then covers his face, verse 13 says, which is an indicator of a man cannot enter the presence of a holy God. And so he covers his face as if to say, the presence of God is here and I rep recognize it. So the presence of God has now come, the thing he really needs. Not the words, not the answers, not the hows, not the whys, not the instructions, not what to do next. The thing he really needs is the presence of God. He needs to know he's there. He needs to experience that presence. And friends, that's what you and I need. When you are serving the Lord and you don't wanna do it, and you're like, I'm done. The thing I want you to know is that you need more than you need God to go, well, here's what you can do. Here's the next strategy. Or here's why I let that happen. Why I brought that about. And here's what I'm gonna do next. More than you need any of that, you need to be in the presence of God and experience it. It's the only thing that can restore you. It's the only thing that can restore you. Now, listen, think like Psalm 73, beautiful psalm, and in the psalm, the psalmist Asaph is saying, I'm so discouraged. These evil people seem to prosper. They've got all the money, they've got all the health, like they seem to have it all. And he's complaining to God about that. And then there's this transition in the psalm where he says, but then I entered the temple of the Lord. In other words, I went where? Into the presence of God. And I saw everything shifted then at that moment. And the psalm ends with a great statement. As for me, the psalmist says, in spite of all the wickedness that I see and the prospering of the wicked, in spite of all that, my perspective has changed. And what I know is this, the nearness of God is my good. One of my favorite psalms. As for me, they may, they may have all that, and, but ultimately it's gonna come to nothing. I see it now because I've been in the presence of God. But as for me, 
the nearness of God is my good. In other words, the presence of God heals me. It restores me. He is for me, not against me. Now, how do we walk in that? Let's just be super practical here. We got a couple minutes, all right? How do we walk in that? Because here's what I could do. I could do a couple things now. I could start to talk about disciplines of solitude and silence, and that wouldn't be inappropriate. So one of the keys for interpretation of the Old Testament, I wanna make sure you've got in your brains, is that whenever you read a narrative, a story, one of the things you have to ask is what parts of this story are descriptive and which parts are prescriptive? In other words, I'm reading the story, and as I read it, am I supposed to do what is being done here, or should I expect what is done to be done, right? So must I go walk in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights in order to experience the presence of God? That would be a wrong application of this text to say, well, that's what the text means. It's describing something that happened, but it is also prescribing a principle. It's not prescribing that specific activity, but it's prescribing a principle of often solitude is necessary to experience the presence of God. And here's how we know that. Because if we're wondering, well, is that just something that happened to Elijah and something he did, or is that something I should expect in my own life? And we say, well, the principle is really about solitude. Fair enough. The reason we know that that principle stands is because it's testified to in other places in Scripture. So we see again and again that solitude, Jesus pulls away by himself. Why? To be with the Father. Yes? In order to receive what he needs to go the next day and do the work that God has called him to do. And we see that again and again in the Scriptures. We see that pattern. So here's a, here's a, a little uh, you know, sales pitch for reading the Word of God in its totality. Yes? and knowing it. Now, so we could talk about disciplines of solitude, silence, patterns in our life. We could talk about going into our daily time with the Lord in prayer, which I pray you were having every morning, waking up and going to the presence of God. And as you do, reframing that for you so that rather than going in and saying, I need to tell you stuff, God, or I need you to tell me stuff, God, that you go in and say, my goal here is just to be with you. And if you wanna say something to me, I'm listening. And if you wanna tell me to do something, I will obey. But ultimately, I'm here to enjoy your presence. I'm here to be with you. And if we say nothing, it's fine. So I could do all that, but I wanna point you to one thing that is above all of that. And, at the, and, and really, it's the foundation. So maybe that's the wrong above, underneath all of that is the way I should say it, because it's foundational. I want you to see that your situation and Elijah's are different. And in, they're different in one really crucial way because you live on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you follow the story, Jesus has come and in his crucifixion and resurrection and then his ascension said to us that if he were to be crucified and resurrected and ascended, he would send one to us whom he called the helper slash that word can also be translated the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And now that spirit indwells all who believe in Jesus. Do you know what that means? you have a more powerful manifestation of the presence of God every day than Elijah had at Mount Horeb. Every day you have available to you the presence of God in a way that Elijah did not. The greatest of all the prophets, the one who heard and called down fire from heaven and heard direct instructions from God, all of that, your experience of the presence of God is richer right now in this moment than what was just described in chapter 19. Now, if we know that, do we pay attention to it? It takes some attention on our part to say the Spirit of God is here. He's with me. How do I enjoy that presence? How do I walk with him in such a way that I'm recognizing that this is, you're with me. 
You haven't abandoned me. You haven't forsaken me. So friends, that, that's what I want you to see more than anything is the work of Jesus has made available to you the presence of God. First of all, Jesus is the presence of God come to the world, yes? He is very God of very God, his presence here. But then when he left, he didn't just go, all right, well, God is now leaving the scene as well. He said, no, 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 no. I have come and now I will continue to be here, but just not in the second person of the Trinity, in the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God. And now every day you have that spirit with you and in you. He will guide, he will direct, but more than needing the spirit to show you what to do and where to go and tell you why, you need to know that that, that spirit is God's presence with you. Communicating the love of God, the care of God, the tenderness of God, the restoration of God, he restores you. He's the one that leads you back to return when you've walked away in discouragement. That He's saying, no, 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 I, I stay in it. Go back, go back, return. So friends, I want you to see that because once you understand that, then that becomes this foundational expectation more so than waiting for the, you know, I'm going to the mountain and, you know, the rocks are gonna break and then God is gonna be, this. Here's what I want you to know, though. Let me say this. As you engage with the Spirit of God day by day, if you hear nothing from him, if he is silent, that silence is not absence. That silence is intentional communication of the presence of God in a way that words cannot bring it. He is showing you and causing you to experience his presence in a way that is deeper and richer than words. If he's silent, that's why. Because it's not that he doesn't love you and it's not that he's not there. So the conclusion we must draw is that it is because, it is because that's what we need to experience the presence of God is silence. Isn't that crazy to think? No longer do we see the silence of God and the cross of Jesus is the promise of this. If he has sent his son, Romans eight thirty two says, if he's given us his son, which is the hardest thing to give, what else would he not give us? So if you do not hear him, if you feel he is not speaking, it is so you might experience his presence through silence, not because he does not care. Does that reframe our thinking a little bit? That's the message of this chapter. God in the silence, giving us his presence, which is what we need most. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We thank you that it, says things to us that challenge us and that restore us and that heal us. And I would pray again today that this story in Elijah's life would be a, a healing thing in the lives of your people, specifically those who are in the midst of a really hard battle right now. Keep us faithful. Help us to walk through the hard things. Help us to persevere. Jesus, thank you that you have done far more and now you've sent your spirit in us who can cause us to persevere. But thank you that we don't have to persevere just in sort of gritting our teeth, but we can receive restoring work from your presence. Now would you receive our praises. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.